Hey folks, this is Josh Schlossberg with the Green Root Podcast. For this episode, we have David R. Loy. David is a professor, writer, and Zen teacher, a founding member of the Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center outside Boulder, Colorado, and the author of Ecodharma, Buddhist Teachings for the Ecological Crisis. David, thanks so much for coming on the Green Root Podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Josh. Uh, pleased to join you. Yeah. So I saw you give a talk about a year ago in, uh, it was a coffee shop in Longmont, Colorado, and I just really appreciated how you more or less simplified these concepts of Buddhism and the overlap between environmentalism or the eco-crisis or whatever you want to call it. And I just feel like it's been long overdue. Obviously, some people are talking about it, but I definitely find in in the Buddhism circles, there's some environmental awareness, but not, I would say, to a level of activism. And then in the environmental world, I would say there is next to no uh, awareness of Buddhism or other spiritual teachings. Uh, there's a little bit, but not very much. So I appreciate how you did that. And your book, Ecodharma, I read last year, I was very much taken by that. So I wanted to have you on the podcast. And so let's just start at the, the beginning here, because I would say a lot of our listeners of the Green Root podcast, they're very well versed on environmental issues, probably not so much in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we could say, what relevance does Buddhism, Eastern thought, Eastern philosophy have for environmentalism? Yeah, well, I, I think the nice thing about about Buddhism in particular and sort of Asian philosophies generally is that it really offers us quite a different perspective, you know, which can be very helpful. I mean, one example of that, um, I mean, European Western ways of understanding the world, I mean, in a way, our, our sort of speciesism, our, our preoccupation with ourself, it kind of flows out of the Bible and the, uh, you think of Genesis and the way that uh, you know we're the last thing created, and we're made in the image of God, and we're stewards or or more of uh, all the other uh, creatures. It's interesting that say in India, and, and it's not only Buddhism, but in India generally, there's not that strong bifurcation between humans and other living beings. There's really a sense that of of a continuity and so i think there's a lot more sensitivity at, at least implicit in in buddhist and some other indian teachings uh to to what's going on ecologically with with the biosphere yeah that's really good thing to understand so a lot of the judean christian pathway is that we are superior, we are supreme, we are in control, and that kind of leads us along that path. Whereas right. looking at things in a, in a different way, we're all part of the ecosystem and the universe. But what if you don't really buy into a lot of Buddhism? Let's just say you're not super into the spiritual practice. You don't meditate, stuff like that. Is there still any, any relevance to folks like that? Well, I think one one thing to to point out is Buddhism is a very big tent, right? So there's a lot of different types of Buddhism, and when you look at its history, it's it's interesting the way that because Buddhism itself emphasizes impermanence and insubstantiality, uh, how it also exemplifies that in the in the way that every time it's spread to a new culture it's really changed pretty radically because it's interacted with its local. And the same sort of thing is going on now in the West. So, you know, when you say I'm a Buddhist or not a Buddhist, that's kind of too, too general to be, to be all that meaningful. I mean, for example, one thing I think we're all familiar with lately is, is the whole mindfulness movement, which within the Buddhist world is, is somewhat controversial, but nonetheless, uh, it's pretty clear that that is kind of an extension of, of Buddhist meditation teaching, sort of Buddhism without the religion. Mm -hmm. And, and so, it, I mean, I think that's a very good example of the, of what Buddhism has to offer. And to, to add to that, um, I spend a lot of time as a Buddhist teacher talking to Buddhists about why it's important to be ecologically and socially engaged. But I think it works the other way around too, in the sense that, uh, if, environment, if environmentalists were to have some kind of contemplative mindfulness practice, that could be extraordinarily helpful, you know, in the sense of helping avoid 
you know, frustration, anger, the burnout. I mean, to be an environmentalist today is a pretty tough, often frustrating job. And if you can sort of ground yourself in some kind of practice like that, I think it can, it can make a huge difference. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's a super important point. And it's something that I personally experienced. So in my 20s, basically, I was an angry activist. And in some ways, I still am a little bit, but I was definitely fueled by anger. There was definitely a fair amount of ego driving me, you know, maybe instead of trying to self aggrandize, so I could accumulate possessions, I wasn't doing that. But I was probably doing a little bit of that. Look at me, I'm the cool environmentalist and stuff like that. And, and, and things like that. Um, so something I also noticed was a lot of other folks are very, yeah, angry, upset, not a lot of, I don't want to say mental clarity, but not a lot of calm in the activist mindset. So what you're suggesting is that these practices, whatever you want to call it, if it's mindfulness, if it's elements of Buddhism and different schools of thought there, that it actually could improve or enhance their activism, or at least how they show up to their activism. For sure. And in fact, that's that's kind of been my own journey as well. You know, I'm I'm, I'm of an earlier generation, a child of the 60s. But, uh, you know, I was a anti-Vietnam War activist, a draft resistor in the late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, I think that was a really important thing to do. But I could also see at a certain point that my own anger was getting in the way. And ultimately, that it wasn't enough to work for social change that it was also important to look at myself and 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 see where the anger was coming from. And, you know, can we have an activism based not on anger, but on love? Uh, and I think that that's a huge question. I mean, in, in general, I spend a lot of time talking and writing now about sort of socially engaged Buddhism. And I think the basic argument there is we need to bring the two together, you know, mm. uh, when I was young and, and you also, uh, you know, the, the focus on the social transformation and then Buddhists, given the way that Buddhism developed in Asia, the way the Buddhist tradition has emphasized individual or personal transformation. The really exciting thing is I think how we need to bring them together today. Yeah. Hmm. So you say love, not anger. And I think for me, it's always been a mix of both. And I'm trying to now focus more on the love component. But, you know, of course, for a lot of environmental folks, we see environmental destruction. That was kind of the first thing. Although if you go back a little further, probably the first thing was the love, right? So we, we love the natural world. I know I love the forest around my house. And then they started to do this development there. And then the anger kicked in. So the love was first. I didn't really think about environmentalism until kind of the anger, they're taking something away. And then I wanted to act. But so a lot of us are saying, well, anger is a great fuel. If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. How, how, how can we phrase that in terms of it's still okay to be, this is something we need to change, but raging about it, it doesn't have to be the way we go about things. And in fact, can be detrimental is what I've learned at least. Yeah. I mean, Interestingly, within the Buddhist tradition, you know, again, a big tent, there, there's a bit of ambivalence there. I mean, a lot of people would say anger is bad. I would say that fundamentally anger is a kind of energy mm -hmm. and it can be really valuable. You know, uh, the problem is when it gets distorted by the ego, mm -hmm. you know, and, and uh, also living in that energy too much. It can really sort of eat away at you, as you know. So as far as having that motivation to sort of get us off our cushions and, and get out there, that can be really valuable. But in general, what Buddhism really emphasizes most of all is this, these two pillars of wisdom, realizing our interconnectedness, you know, overcoming the delusion of a separate self, the idea that I'm inside my eyes looking out at you and you're outside, and therefore my well-being is somehow separate from your well-being. Buddhism really emphasizes the importance of seeing through that. And then when we realize our connection with other people and our connection with the natural world, embodying that is really what we need by, mean by compassion or in the broadest sense, love. So that, that would be the foundation. But within that, yeah, anger, the energy of anger, you know, when somebody is doing something really inappropriate, 
that that can be valuable as long as we don't sort of get stuck perverting it. Yeah. So it could be a catalyst you're suggesting, but if we're just fueling it and we're just feeding it all the time, that's not a really helpful thing. And the question is whether it's good for our activism and then whether it's good for ourselves. I think everyone can agree being angry all the time is not good for oneself. And then if you end up burning out, you're not helping, right? It's right. you got to stay in it for the long game, kind of the slow burn concept versus some mm. sort of a gas fire or whatever, however you want to have the analogy. Wildfire. Wildfire, right, exactly. So another thing though is this concept of, if you want to call it mindfulness or just being present, that can help us actually appreciate the natural world a bit more as it actually is. So I'm somebody who's full of concepts and I'm in, I'm in the natural world a lot, but it used to be like, oh, there is that rock face. That rock face looks like uh, a, you know, a, a face of a, of a troll and that's fun. I write stories, but then I started to try to be like, well, let me just be present with that rock face. And maybe I am just observing, here's a crack there, but instead of always turning it into the conceptual, do you think those efforts can actually help us become more in touch with nature. Mm -hmm, for sure. It's interesting you mentioned trolls. I have to add here, uh, many years ago, I wrote a children's book about trolls. <laughs> it was published when I was living in Singapore. It was called The Last Troll in Singapore. But uh, sorry, that's a bit peripheral there. You that's, can edit that no, out. I, no, I love that. I actually write horror fiction, so I'm really oh. into trolls. So nothing, nothing against trolls. This is not an anti-troll <laughs> podcast in any way. So I'm glad you said that. Well, I think what you were pointing, though, is, is to the importance of the natural world in terms of being healing. Uh, you know, wh when we think about our lives, especially in urban settings, it's so instrumentalist. It's like we're always using things. We're always moving from one thing to another, trying to get stuff accomplished. And, you know, insofar as we're environmentalists, that, that's certainly something we have to take, you know, take into consideration. One really important thing about being out in the natural world, though, is somehow how it does help us slow down and overcome. I mean, it's not automatic. I once heard about a forester who said when he looked at a tree, what he really saw was a stump with dollar bills on it, you know. Right. So, but at least it gives us that invitation to sort of let go of that instrumentalist, future-oriented way of living and, and get in touch with something, I don't know, something more organic, something more primeval. And frankly, I think we all need that healing today. I mean, given everything that's going on and we don't need to, you know, make a a litany there, but uh, certainly is there anything really more healing than being out in the natural world and op opening up to it? So I totally agree. I ended up moving out of the city in the spring. It coincided with the, the pandemic it was not the main reason, but it was definitely a reason to head for the hills. And it's been super healing for me. It's been really important. I always go for a weekly hike anyway, but now I'm kind of living where my hikes are. And mm -hmm. Yeah, I have to say without it, I, I definitely would be in a more difficult headspace than I am right now. And it is healing for me. I, I go out to nature and I remind myself, this is the source. This is this is real. We have all these other fabrications and you know, buildings exist and stuff like that, but they are not existence as I see it. They're human created, which still counts. That's important. But I look at a stream like, all right, this always was and in many ways, in a sense, always will be. It's very helpful for me. And I think most of our listeners know, yes, getting out in nature is an important thing. But I do think some of us don't always really immerse ourselves in it. And I know even personally, I'm like trying to get to a specific point. It used to be trying to climb to the top of mountains. Now I'm not really obsessed with getting to the top of mountains. Once in a while I do that. You know, I like views, but I don't need that view. I don't need that, that point at the end of the map. For me, it's just being out there and I like moving my body. So instead of going for like 12, 15 mile hikes, sometimes I'll, you know, I'll go for shorter hikes and I'm just, let me sit around a little bit. Let me just look at things. And I think that can be just a helpful practice and can tie into Buddhism or also can just tie into just chilling out a little bit, however you want to look at it. Well, it actually ties into Buddhism really deeply uh, when, you know, and not only Buddhism, but I, I think a lot of religions, uh, this is something we tend to overlook or not be aware of. But for example, 
Although we don't know much for sure about the life of the Buddha, according to the traditional stories, he had this incredible connection with the natural world. He was born outside in, in a grove of trees when his mother went into premature labor. He first had his natural experience of meditation when he was a kid sitting under a tree. When he left home in his spiritual quest, where did he go? Into the forest. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, he's studying with teachers. He's doing his ascetic practice. He's meditating. He has his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. Yep. He's still, after that, he, he basically is living, teaching. And when he dies, guess what? He dies between two trees in a clearing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and, and it's not only the Buddha. If you think about Jesus, where did he, uh, what did he do after his baptism by John the Baptist? He went out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Or Muhammad, the Quran came to him. He was in a cave, he went to a cave where he would pray. So it's like a lot of the religious founders were sort of leaving social society behind right. and kind of opening up to something deeper. And is it an accident that they found it in the natural world? Whereas now, when we think of religion, we think of buildings, even when we think of meditation centers, they're usually, you know, quadrangular rooms with screens and windows. And we may wonder, are we losing something there? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for that. I first started dabbling in meditation maybe 15 years ago, and I could only do it outside. And it was the only time that it actually struck me to do it. I would be somewhere on a hillside or in a mountain and the wind would be blowing and there'd be a rock. And I just, I can do it here. And for some reason, I just couldn't do it at home. So that actually got me into meditation, just that whole concept, because it was the wind was blowing. I don't know. I, I guess I would envision myself as some Chinese poet or something like that, because I read <laughs> a lot of their stuff and they're kind of out there on the hillside as a hermit. And I'm an aspiring hermit. So, yeah. You know, uh, that's why we started this Ecodharma Center you mentioned. You know, we have this Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center, started it, what, three and a half years ago. And, you know, basically, it's uh, three buildings, one big lodge, mainly uh, 180 acres uh, above Jamestown, a little bit. And uh, why do we, you know, weather permitting, when I do retreats there, I co-teach them sometimes, uh, we're outside all the time, you know, we're meditating under trees, and we're, we're sometimes going off by ourselves, sometimes coming together for talks and discussions. But, you know, we just think that, I mean, that's the whole reason for that center is to help us, help us reconnect. Yeah. And yeah, you're in nature, but then you're also dealing with the elements. So then there's a bug and then you're, oh, I can focus back on myself. It's a little cold. It's a little chillier than I'd like it, or it's a little too warm. And you sort of kind of, you get distracted with that. You can kind of bring back to the present. Oh, this is, it's a lumpy rock I'm sitting on instead of some, <laughs> ideal cushion and, you know, room exactly 72 degrees. So would you say that even just being in, in those elements can kind of help develop your practice? So it's, it, it's a challenge for sure for, for many people, but it's well worth it because when you really do kind of, you know, sink into your practice, you, you feel that you're harmonizing and even sometimes sort of communicating with the trees or with that stream flowing by you. And, you know, that those bugs aren't always things that are bugging you, but you can feel some kind of, you know, relationship with, with them. And, you know, one unfortunate thing, of course, about the uh, the kind of urban lives that most of us live now is we're we've lost our ability to communicate with non-human beings, uh, which is a real shame. I mean, I think that 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 opportunity, that possibility, is there, but we're, we're so used to finding meaning only in words that we're not able to pick up on subtler things there and just spending time out there can help. The other thing that I, that I would want to mention, Josh, is one important element of our retreats at this center is, you know, by, by living together for maybe a week or sometimes longer, 10 days, uh, meditating together, talking together, also meditating, um, yeah, we also help each other get in touch with our grief because that what we're finding with our eco dharma retreats is that that's a huge issue i think so many of us are grieving and and we repress it 
you know, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to deal with it. But by doing it, we're sort of disempowering ourselves. Mm. And, you know, it's important not to confuse grief with despair, you know, to get in touch with the grief and, and, and to feel it can, can be very liberating and empowering as far as really inspiring us to, you know, like, like the anger we were saying, it, it, it can energize us to sort of go out and uh, ask ourselves, what can I do and uh, find a way forward there? Yeah, I think I use anger to avoid feeling grief as do a lot of people. So I think feeling that a little bit more and, and you definitely get into that in your book, Ecodharma, Buddhist teachings for the ecological crisis. So let's talk about the concept of grief in terms of the eco crisis and how we can address that. We have had some folks on the podcast who, who talk about stuff like that. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes there, there can be an element of fatalism and then, of course, on the other side, there can be an element of denial. So maybe the sweet spot is the grief and then not wallowing in it. How, how, how can we tell us the answer? <laughs> <laughs> in 10 words or less? Yes, please. <laughs> you know, I think this is a really important place where something like Buddhism, some kind of contemplative path can, can be really helpful. I mean, one, one thing we emphasize, especially in the Zen tradition where I trained, uh, we emphasize what's called don't know mind, hmm. you know, and it's like acknowledging how much we don't know, even when, you know, even when things look bad, which in many ways they certainly do, even when it might be too late, you might remember one of the chapters in the Ecodharma book is what if it's too late? Mm -hmm. And that's a real possibility in terms of tipping points, right? Mm -hmm. but, but the big deal is we don't know. So the, the task is a, a different kind of activism where we feel called upon. And that's the other thing. When, when we sort of get beyond the ego and get beyond the, the impotence or, or the paralyzing that grief happens. When we get beyond that, we kind of open up to something greater than ourselves that impels us, that, that calls on us to act. So I think that's the sort of Buddhist, and not only the Buddhist, but, but the Buddhist approach to responding appropriately to the kind of situation that, that we find ourselves in. And what it really comes down is uh, feeling the importance of doing the very best we can without knowing whether anything we do is going to make any difference whatsoever. And, and I think that's huge. I, I think that's got to be our attitude. But to be frank, I think it's very difficult to do that without some kind of contemplative grounding, you know. Otherwise, there is such an attachment to outcome. And then when the outcomes don't work out the way we want them to, then, you know, then that's when we get into the burnout and the anger and the rage. And there's an important sense in which the outcome, yeah, we can play a somewhat of a role in that, but ultimately it's, we're not the only ones responsible. So can we just do the best we can? And, uh, and, you know, obviously we're trying to be strategic and think through as well as we can, but in the end, we don't know. I remember something Wendell Berry said, he, the, you know, the great essayist, he said, we don't have the right to ask whether we're going to be successful. Mm. The only right we have is the, you know, the right to ask, what is the right thing to do? What does this earth expect or demand of us if we want yeah. to continue living on it. And, and so I think that's a certain kind of attitude or approach that I think we need to develop. And that's where something like Buddhism or some kind of contemplative practice can be helpful. Yeah, yeah that is a, a super deep concept, if you want to call it a concept, but I think it's absolutely true. I've experienced it myself. I used to be really wrapped up in results but then most of the time I would fail anyway. So I learned to just like, well, you know what? It's, it's sort of out of my hands. At yep. the same time, I want to do the thing that I'm supposed to be doing. So it's not a matter of just throwing up your hands and not doing anything and giving up. And I think that's where Buddhism gets a bad rap in terms of, oh, they're just sitting there and just telling themselves everything's fine as it is, which if you go deep enough, 
probably everything is fine as it is, but that doesn't mean you can't take an action, right? It doesn't mean somebody is coming to punch your grandmother and you're just like, well, my grandmother is meant to be punched. I don't think that's what Buddhism is teaching. <laughs> no. It's like, maybe get up there and stop the guy who's punching your grandma or, or the woman who knows we live in a modern world. And you can do that, but you can maybe have compassion for the person who's, why is this person trying to punch my grandma? What did my grandma say to, to get this person upset? So that's a ridiculous example. But it, to me, it helps to take away from the thing that I'm immersed in all the time, which is the environmental thing. But one aspect of that is you're not suggesting, though, that we shouldn't be reevaluating where whether or not we're being effective. Right. Because a lot of environmental activism is is really not particularly effective. So how do we meld that idea of in the long run, there's not much we get to decide we can do the right thing, but realizing, okay, maybe this is not the right thing. How do we navigate that? Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting that um, in, in Mahayana Buddhism, the Buddhism of East Asia, the, the, the emphasis is on what's called the Bodhisattva path, which is to say not simply about your own awakening and transformation, but helping other one, everyone else transform as well. And I think in the modern world, what we see is that it's not enough to work simply on the individual level, but that we also have to look at institutions and how much they are the problem. And that requires us to work together with others to, to help them. But the reason I mentioned the Bodhisattva path is that in the Zen tradition, we take these vows every day uh, to living beings are numberless, I vow to help save them all which is a really interesting idea. So it's like transforming the meaning of one's, one's life. You know, It's the fact that you're vowing to do something that can never really be fully accomplished. The point of that is that it's not so much goal-oriented, but it's rather shifting the direction, shifting the focus, shifting the meaning, as I, as I said. And, and what that implies is, yeah, we... So we do the best we can. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we realize that we need to be doing what we were doing in a different way. Or maybe we need to be doing something altogether different. I mean, we can still be educated from the failures or from all the ways in which things don't work out in the way that we'd like them to. But what doesn't change is that fundamental commitment to, to doing our best. Uh, so there's nothing within that vow or there's nothing within that orientation that uh, gets in the way of our learning as much as we can and, and getting smarter in our activism. Yeah, sure. That makes a lot of sense. And one of the ideas is the right thought, right speech, right action. That's what we can control in a sense. That's all I can do. All right. I know, I know what my mindset is here. These are the words I'm using. These are the things I'm doing beyond that. There's not much I can do. And personally over the last decade or so, I I've become more in tune with that. I stepped away from activism and in a sense, I don't know if even what that word means anymore right now, I'm just doing the podcast. I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I can at least have conversations with people on this topic in ways that interest me. And maybe that'll get out there. That's that's people ask, Oh, what are you trying to do with the podcast? I'm like, well, did you listen to it? Yep. Well, that's about it. I mean, I don't know. What am I supposed Same to do with writing books, by the way? <laughs> right. Right. But speaking of books, let's talk a little bit about your book because I find it a very valuable piece of information here. I was a very enjoyable read as a writer myself. Uh, you, you do a job of making frankly complex seem pretty simple. And that is the ultimate that is the ultimate achievement of a writer to make it seem like it was just, it was very simple, but we know that these topics are not very simple. So why did you write Ecodharma? Hmm. Well, I guess I have to go back a little bit, right? I've already mentioned my uh, you know, anti-Vietnam war days. And it was after that, as the war wound down that I kind of dropped out and ended up getting involved in, in Zen practice and so forth. Um, so, I had some background in social activism, uh, but it's it's interesting how the the way Buddhism evolved. When you go back all the way to the earliest texts, and it's pretty clear the Buddha was a lot more progressive than the institution that developed after he died. When you look mm -hmm. at his attitude toward women, the way that 
you know, women had their own Sangha, they had the same potential to awaken as men. Well, 2,400 years ago, that was pretty huge. Mm. When you join and became a Buddhist monk, there was no caste. So, you know, there's no racism or anything. But the way the Buddhist traditions, all of the Asian Buddhist traditions are patriarchal and many of them are also nationalistic. But, mm. but the way that they sort of survived and thrived as well as they did is the emphasis was shifted completely to one's own personal meditation, one's own personal karma, one's own personal awakening. And, and that's the kind of legacy. And, and it's good in some ways in the sense that, you know, Buddhism has developed probably the world's greatest collection of contemplative practices that we can use. But there's been so much of this emphasis on, you know, your own individual suffering, your own individual practice. And maybe Buddhism had to do that in Asia because none of those countries was democratic. Mm. Uh, but still, Buddhism has this potential to change. And so the big thing that's been happening in the last couple of generations now that Buddhism has come to the, um, the West or the modern world in general is that it's encountering, for example, the Judeo-Christian the concern, the, the prophetic dimension, the concern for social transformation. And so the Buddhism is opening its horizons and we're becoming more aware of the challenge of, uh, maybe I should back up a little bit here. Buddhism, the most important term in Buddhism is dukkha, originally suffering, but it's tended to be understood only on the individual level. At least that's the focus. And now, as I hinted at earlier, we're much more aware of systems, right? We're much more aware of institutions and actually applying that, moving Buddhism in that direction to ask, okay, how do we address the suffering caused by racism? How do we address the suffering caused by late capitalism and what that's doing to the earth? Then this to me is a kind of natural extension. So given my background, and also my academic background, uh, it just seemed that that's kind of what I've wanted to emphasize more. There's a lot of ways, there's a lot of elements to this question of moving Buddhism into the 21st century, but one of the most important is this whole question of social engagement and ecological engagement. And I have to say, it's been a bit slow. It's only in the last couple of years that I feel that a lot of Buddhist groups have really gotten into this, but it does seem to be happening now. I think more and more Buddhists are, are, are increasingly concerned. Like in America, racism and also uh, ecological engagement have become very hot topics within American Buddhist centers, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, something I find really interesting with environmentalists is a lot of the times they fall into one of two categories. So we have the folks who are like, fight the system, tear down capitalism, tear down the corporations, but not really realizing how we individually in some ways feed into that. And then there are folks who are like, all you need to do is be, be cool, grow your garden, and then we'll fix everything. And I've, over time, I was into each of those and I'm realizing, well, we kind of need to do both, don't we? Yep. Yep. I mean, cl clearly there's, there's, I mean, you, you find the same parallel in Buddhism where, you know, don't just go out there and be socially engaged, but hey, you've got to look at yourself. What's motivating you? You know, social activism so often fails. One of the reasons is there's so much ego involved. Uh, and so from a Buddhist point of view, we'd say, you know, take some time to look at your own ego and, and where you're at. Uh, and, and I think it's the same ecologically. We need to look at our own carbon footprint I mean, how hypocritical it is to sort of try to change the system if we're still incredible, you know, first world consumers. Uh, so I think you're exactly right there. I think we need to work on both levels. We need to reduce our own consumption. And based on the realization that consumerism as a religion, and I think it is, kind of is the religion of the modern world, mm. it doesn't really make us happy. Uh, so working on that level, but at the same time, aware how we have these structures, these social structures that tend to keep us locked into that and tend to keep us destroying the earth. So that's just a long way of agreeing with you, Josh, that I think both sides are important here. Yeah. And I do like the 
way of applying the concept of the bodhisattva to being an environmentalist these days. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, the concept of bodhisattva is you're attaining certain states of mind or I don't want to say, obviously it's not enlightenment, but you're, you're kind of uh, working on, on your inner self, right? And you can keep going where you basically go off on the mountain and maybe become part of the ether. But the obligation is that you don't necessarily let yourself just become one with the universe until everyone else is able to. And obviously environmentalism, it's a bit more of an earthly way of looking at it, but it's like you, you being pure on your own, that's okay. That's, that's cool. But look at all the rest of the world who, who is, who needs to be not necessarily educated and made to think the way we do, but sharing, sharing some of those gifts. So would you, is that an accurate way of describing it an overlap or? Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Um, I mean, when people come to Buddhist practice, it's, it's usually because there's some something missing, something wrong in our own lives, right? It's like our lives aren't going as well as we would like them to. And so there's naturally, naturally, I think, at the beginning, a kind of self-preoccupation, mm-hmm. such as we usually experience. But as we get more and more deeply into our practice, what, what that reveals is at the root of the dissatisfaction we feel is the sense of separation or alienation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned before this delusive duality that I'm inside and you're outside. Um, that for Buddhism, that is really at really the heart of the issue. Uh, and so as we get more and more deeply into the practice and start to realize that, somehow going off into a cave by myself would just be reproducing or deepening the fundamental problem, mm-hmm. right? You know, the idea really isn't to transcend or escape the world, but to realize our non-duality with it and therefore respond appropriately to it. As Joanna Macy likes to say, the idea isn't to transcend the world, it's to transcend the ego. You know, the ego, that which feels separate and that which feels, you know, my well-being is separate from yours. That That's really the the root of the problem. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about ego, because I think those who are not familiar with Buddhism maybe think, oh, they're the people who are egotists, the narcissists, and we know those folks, right? And then there's everyone else. And you know, I'm, I'm not, a, my ego is not really a thing or like, oh, that seemed like a bunch of egos. It's pretty much un, unless we become enlightened, there's always going to be some element of, of the ego involved. But maybe you can just go a little deeper into how that concept of the ego applies to environmentalism. That's pretty broad, but say whatever you want about that. Well, I mean, part of the issue there, part of the problem is ego means too many different things, right? In popular parlance, right? Ego, you know, he's got a big ego, right? He's full of himself kind of thing. Whereas in a Buddhist context, it's more the, like I said, it's the delusion of separation, Mm-hmm. It, it's the delusion of a self. Well, okay, we all have a self, but in more contemporary terms, that sense of self is a kind of social psychological construct that develops as we, you know, when we're born, learn language, grow up, learn to see the world in the way that everyone else does. And, and so for Buddhism, that on the one hand, that sense of self is necessary, of course, but the point is, if that's, on, if that's the only way we experience the world, we're... we're going to be experiencing certain kinds of dissatisfaction or suffering built into that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my all-time favorite quotes, actually, he's not a Buddhist. He's a Vedantin uh, Indian. Uh, he said, Nisargadatta said, when I look inside and see that I am nothing, that's wisdom. When I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love. Mm-hmm. Between these two, my life flows, right? Beautiful. So mm-hmm. he, you know, he he's he's talking about the wisdom that realizes our non-separation. And then how do we embody? How do we incorporate that? How do we actually live it? And that's what love means. It's not a love in this sense isn't a feeling or or an emotion. It's it's a way of being that embodies this 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 fundamental realization. And 
that's that ability is what is what Buddhists are talking about. And for somebody who really does that, they're naturally going to want to uh, live a kind of bodhisattva life. Mm -hmm. Because as long as I've had this sense of separation, as I keep saying, my well-being is separate from yours, then as long as I'm feeling that, then there's going to be naturally a kind of self-preoccupation, right? What's mm -hmm. in it for me? any situation. But if I can see through that delusion of separation and we're all part of each other and what happens to you affects me and vice versa, then that's going to revolutionize the whole meaning of my life in terms of, whoa, given who I am, given the situation I find myself in, what can I do to work with others to make this better for, for everyone? And, and so that's, that's, and then that's where naturally social engagement, uh, including environmentalism, uh, naturally comes in, I think. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of environmentalists are pretty good on the biocentrist component, mm. as in, at least they intellectually, we intellectually understand, okay, I am part of nature. Obviously, we humans are pretty weird, and we kind of do have our own thing going on. But ultimately, we're cells, we are water that can't exist or, well basically water can exist without us we can't exist without water so i think a lot of environmentalists kind of get that right it, at mm -hmm. some level but the tricky part i think for environmentalists is to realize that we are one with all other humans as well so the the corporate executive of the timber company that is clear cutting the forest we love that is also they're also us in a sense, right? And there's a part of us in them and vice versa. And we tend to be like, no, that's an evil scumbag or whatever, and I'm pure and good. Yeah. So would you say that's a, a practice that we environmentalists, it's not condoning that action in any way. It's not saying, right. now right. we have to love clear cutting forests. Like that. that's not what anyone's suggesting, but that's the, the, the issue I've been navigating over time. And can you speak a little to that? Yeah, I mean, uh, something like Buddhism here is quite different from the usual Abrahamic uh, or, you know, Judeo-Christian. If you think about, say, the Abrahamic, uh, the focus is very much good versus evil, right? And, you know, that's why we've got God and Satan and uh, whose side are you on kind of stuff. And if you're on the wrong side, we're going to burn you at the stake, right? Uh, interesting for Buddhism, that's not the important issue. It's more delusion versus wisdom or, or uh, ignorance versus awakening. And that awakening, of course, involves realizing that everyone has the same Buddha nature. In fact, from a Buddhist strictly standpoint, you know, all living beings have that, have that same Buddha nature, the ability to feel. Um, and so, uh, you know, from that angle, it's really important not to fall back, and it's very hard not to fall back. I mean, tribalism is built into us, I think. But it's really important not to get caught up in uh, I versus you or we versus them. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. What we need to do is destroy, defeat and destroy them, right? Whereas the Buddhist approach is more, you know, some people are more deluded than others and more self-centered than others. And, you know, that needs to be stopped in one or another nonviolent way. But that doesn't mean that they're evil people. It means they're deluded. They have the opportunity, like everyone does, to wake up. And in a way, it kind of fits in. Remember Jesus? Uh, I think it was Jesus, right? You, uh, you hate the sin, not the sinner, mm -hmm. in the sense of... of respecting. And if you think of it historically, I think a very good example of this was uh, Gandhi himself. Uh, you know, he was educated in the United Kingdom in England, and he, um, you know, he learned a lot from that. And his whole struggle for independence in India, it wasn't about calling the English people evil. You know, he said, you know, you're, uh, there, there's too many of us, there's not enough of you, this project of colonialism is wrong. But he always respected the people he was dealing with, with mm. the realization that sooner or later they were going to have to walk out. And, 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 I, and I think his kind of spiritual grounding helped him be effective. He was somebody that the British could 
relate to, could talk to. And, uh, and he was incredibly effective, of course. Yeah, because I think that's the issue about reaching folks is you need to be able to find some of the commonalities. It used to be, I talk about this a lot, how we used to think, oh, loggers are all just idiots and bad people and stuff like that. And really very little has changed in terms of my beliefs on the forest practices that they involve themselves in. But almost everything has changed in terms of who I see them as people. And ironically, that's made it easier for me to talk to them and frankly, share some information that they can start mulling around. And, you know, there's probably some things that they can teach me as well. You know, people who are, a lot of those folks live in their communities are trying to stay in their communities. You know, I left my community. So in some ways I can learn from them for sure. So I'm not just pretending I will impart my wisdom upon them. I feel right. like on the environmental stuff, yeah, I have some things that they might not understand. And then they have other things I can share with me. But the only way is we kind of drop our defenses. I can still be saying, yeah, oh, uh, I hope you're, uh, I hope the clear cutting your, your timber sale falls through, you know, but you could still maybe share a beer with that person. And, and I think some people are open to it. So mm -hmm. the, would you say that the, the biggest piece that's keeping us from being able to talk to these folks and potentially even change their minds is our own ego. It's like, I'm better than this person. And I like to feel better than, you know, this uh, ignorant logger. So I'm not going to let that go. The idea better, I mean, it's, it's resting on, it presupposes I'm different, <clears throat> right? And, and the, and the fundamental idea of real, like, realizing we all have the same basic nature, the same in Buddhist terms, the ability to wake up is even uh, that that's really important. It's interesting. You talk about loggers. I mean, I think the, the greater challenge there at this point, politically, we think about the polarization in this country, right? Yeah. I mean, to, to be frank, in some ways, the Republicans have really gone far down a rabbit hole mm -hmm. and, you know, how do we, you know, how do we, I mean, there was a time when you might have Democrats and Republicans disagreeing, but even marrying. And now I think the antipathy, each of them believes that the other is a huge threat to the country. And wow, th this may well be the number one challenge that I think we're facing as a country. And I'm certainly not going to pretend that I have uh, any simple answers to that. Yeah, it's, it's so central. And while I pat myself on the back of how accepting I've become of a lot of not anti-environmentalists and even Republicans whose policy I disagree with. Mm. So in the midst of that and thinking, oh, look, look at how much I've, uh, I've achieved in terms of uh, limiting my ego. Recently, a thing that's been triggering me the way I used to get triggered by, say, clear-cutting has been people who are in denial about the pandemic and basically are saying, no, we're not going to do anything. I'm just going to basically from the information that I have and most people have, I'm going to continue to spread disease because this is all a hoax. I have found that all of my acceptance and compassion has gone out the window for those folks. And that's something that I'm, it's a great practice for me. And I did a couple podcasts ago, I basically did an angry rant about that topic. And I actually had a friend who's probably listening today. He's, he said, you sounded really unhinged in that. And I was like, yeah, I kind of am on that topic. And I'm not afraid to hide that because people who've been listening to my podcast know I'm, I'm pretty even tempered. Even I have very strong beliefs in environmental stuff, but I don't get all triggered about, but this, the COVID denial stuff that really triggers me. So I do think my facts are correct, but how can I have compassion for the folks who are living in a kind of delusion, a delusion in which they are very possibly contributing to the deaths of individuals. So that's a whole different level. Okay, you're cutting some trees down. That's the death of trees, but death of humans and death of trees, I, I think are a little bit uh, a different kind of thing. And so I'm finding myself very challenged. So I'm reading a lot of Buddhist stuff, this book on anger, so I can, I can accept who they are as individuals, but I don't have to accept what they're you know, their beliefs are. And I've just found that right now I have to not engage with them because I cannot engage with them without anger. And I think a lot of that's coming from ego. I can still be like, well, all right, these people are potentially spreading disease and they're, and they're so ignorant that they think that they're fighting for freedom. I don't have to give that up, but I, I, I'm trying to re 
reframe that in my mind, frankly, so I just don't get so irate because uh, it's just not it's just not good for me ultimately. Let's just put it that way, and certainly not good for my activism. If I hmm. if I ever want to have any communication with any of these folks, I've got to be able to say. Okay, I understand where you're skeptical. And guess what? I'm skeptical about some of these things too. But that does not mean that the disease doesn't exist. I can't really even have those conversations. So I'm an ineffective advocate in regards to that. So I, I just state that to show that you, you may achieve calm in one category and then some new thing comes and you realize you have to develop your practice more. So, but ultimately, would you say, so this concept of non-duality and we, I, I doubt we'll be able to get to the depths of that at, in the last <laughs> few minutes of the podcast, but the concept of non-duality is basically in a sense, we're all one, but it's, it's more complex than that. I'm going to have you explain elements of that because I'm, I'm still making sense of all that, but, but the idea that we're not separate, do you feel like if you want to just say a little bit about non-duality and then also is that kind of the thing that needs to happen for there to be real ecological change or do we not really have to get everyone to that point? Does it just have to be a certain amount of people? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Easy question, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot there. I mean, yeah. let me go back a little bit and, and start with what you were saying about COVID because yeah, COVID is in our face literally. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet, the problems that you're talking about with death and suffering, I mean, it, it, if we think about the climate emergency or the ecological crisis generally, we're still fairly insulated here in the US here, you know, despite droughts and all that and wildfires in Colorado, that death, that suffering is already happening in many places in the third world. So I don't want to make a really strong distinction between COVID and, and the people who are being ignorant there versus the people who are being ignorant about the ecological crisis there. In both cases, the ignorance has huge repercussions, not just for the person ignorant, but what they're enabling to happen to other people. And so, you know, ignorance, delusion has pretty damn serious consequences and that, and, and, and it always has. Yeah. Uh, now I'm trying to come back and remember what I was going to say about uh, what, what you were getting into after that. Yeah. The, the, the big issue of non-duality, you're right. I mean, I wrote a whole long academic book on the topic. So uh, I'll spare you. I'll spare you that. But I think what the ecological crisis, of course, raises is, I mean, the the Buddhist tradition understands it more on the individual level, right? Uh, overcoming my delusion that I'm separate from you or from other people. And I think what the ecological crisis is pointing us to is, you know, we have a collective sense of self. That is to say humans as a whole, our species, or at least modern civilization, that sense of self in relationship to the biosphere, in a way, ecologically, that's the important duality that we as humans feel that we're separate from the rest of the natural world. And that's why many people talk about the ecological crisis as, as not just economic or technological or political, but in some sense, its foundation is this sense of separation that we feel from the earth, right? So our well-being is separate from the earth. So we can use it. We can take what we want. We can dump, you know, use it as a dump. And, and yet, ultimately, we're separate. So we don't have to be concerned. And, you know, what the ecological crisis, I think, is really is really showing us is the is the delusion, the fundamental delusion built into that in the sense that, uh we're seeing now if the earth gets sick, we get sick, right? Mm. And be, because we are indeed not separate. And it really does feel like it's calling for a really deep transformation, therefore, in the way that we understand human civilization and how that is not something separate, you know, from the earth. But, you know, the earth isn't just a place where we happen to live at the moment, right? The earth is our... Our, our mother, and in a way, we never cut the umbilical cord. If you think we do, 
you know, try to stop breathing for three or four minutes or stop drinking water for a week, see what happens, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, we're part of a, of a great circulation. We're, we're, we're manifestations of something greater than ourselves. And insofar as we feel separate from that, there's we're, one way or another, we're gonna create problems. And I think the, the issue is that now we have these incredibly sophisticated, powerful technologies that we can create really, really big problems for ourselves as opposed to you know, what, what we were doing before. So, so somehow the challenge, and it's a huge one, and you know, there's, it's, it's not as though we can take for granted that it's one that's going to be solved, but we do need to understand our relationship to the earth and the whole biosphere in a very different way. And if we can't do that, you know, I think it was Naomi Klein who said, uh, you know, we have two systems here, right? Uh, one of them is our economic system that has to keep growing if it's not going to collapse. And the other one is the biosphere, which doesn't grow. And sooner or later, they're going to come into conflict. And as she emphasized, only one of those systems can be changed. <laughs> So one way or another, it will be changed. You know, if, if we don't check ourselves in time, the earth will check us, you know? It's, so it's, it's almost like this, this is a make or break moment for humanity, mm -hmm. grow up or get out of the way. That's sometimes very much the way it feels. But here's the other thing. I think there's a generational thing going on, not just generational, but uh, I'm inspired by Paul Hawken who wrote a book about blessed unrest. And he said, something is happening now that's never happened before in the history of humanity. We have this very large number of groups, most of them small, they're, they're nonprofits, but they're springing up as it were spontaneously to work for social justice and sustainability. And what really excites me about that is he compares this to the immune system of our bodies. And he mm -hmm. says, this is the immune system of the earth springing up to heal itself. And so this is how the earth maybe is trying to heal it. Insofar as we're the problem, we may also be the way in which the earth is trying to heal itself. So when I look at Greta, or when I look at Extinction Rebellion, or when I look at Bill McKibben, or some of the great, you know, environmentalists, I, I feel that, you know, there's, the, there's something again, they are part of something greater than themselves. I feel something greater than themselves is working through them. And that's, a, for me, a, a very spiritual sense. It seems like something's brewing. Consciousness is shifting. Mm. We do what we can. A lot, as you say, is out of our control and, and learning to inhabit that space in the middle. That's certainly my challenge. And yeah, a lot of us are kind of, that's where we're at right now. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this. Really appreciate all of your work and writings. Where can people find your work and your writings and whatnot? Well, I have a website and there's an awful lot of stuff on there, including other interviews, podcasts, articles, summaries of the books and all that. It's, it's very simple. David Loy, one word, all lowercase, davidloy.org. Okay. And uh, that there's also a way to contact me on there if people want to follow up. So great. We'll link you in the description as well. And then the Eco Dharma Center, where can people find out about that? The Eco Dharma uh, Retreat Center. Okay. The full name Rocky Mountain Eco Dharma Retreat Center. We also have a website, rmerc.org. That's just the first letters, or you can type out the whole you know, those five words, put, squeeze them all together, and that'll get you to the website. Um, like just about everywhere else this year, we've, you know, the, the lodge, the buildings have been closed. But interestingly, we have been able to have a few camping retreats. Mm -hmm. And uh, looks like we'll be starting off with those next year. But we also are hoping that toward the end of the season, we'll be back in the lodge and continuing with those kinds of ecodharma retreats that I was talking about. Yes, I'm sure things will, will will return to at least some level of normalcy before too long. And yeah, I actually wanna I wanna come up there and visit. I'm very familiar with the area around there, and it's just so beautiful. So that's been on my list for a while. And yeah, after after things uh, our viral storm limits itself, however, uh, I'll try to get up there for sure. 
I'll see if I can show you around, Josh. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty wonderful place. About 15 minutes above Jamestown. Yeah, yeah, I've driven the road nearby. I haven't visited the place, but it, yeah, it's it's a gorgeous location. I encourage other folks to check it out. And yeah, definitely I'll be in touch. And again, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Josh, for this opportunity and also all the other work that you're doing. There's plenty to keep us both busy. For sure, that is absolutely true. Thank you.